You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Amen. You can be seated and good morning to the 10 o'clock family. Good to see you all. We begin a brand new series today called Good Trouble. And we're going to be looking at the life of, of Elijah, who was called the Trouble of Israel. So over the course of the next many weeks, we're going to take a handful of stories from Elijah and see what we can learn uh, from his life. And so if you want to, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Kings, um, the book of 1 Kings. This is where we find the life of Elijah. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 17 today. 1 Kings is 11 books in the Old Testament. If that kind of helps you to find it, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, then 1 Kings. It's right before the 2 Kings. So 1 Kings chapter 17 is where we're going to be today. Before we get there, let me just tell you real quick about, about John Wesley. By all practical purposes, he was the founder of, of the Methodist Church. He and his brother Charles. And John Wesley wrote a letter to William Wilberforce while Wilberforce was in the middle of fighting to put an end to slavery in England. Many of you know Wilberforce was a part of Parliament and just fought really for the extension of his entire time there at Parliament to, to fight against or to push back against slavery. John Wesley wrote this letter. You see a little content of that letter on the screen uh, behind me. Wesley wrote, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing this villainy of slavery, which is the scandal of England and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Wesley died five days later after he wrote that letter. In fact, even before it made it to the hands of Wilberforce, Wesley had died. The next 16 years after receiving that letter, Wilberforce would fight to put an end to slavery in the British Empire. It stirs us. I think it does. It stirs me when, when we see people that kind of come on the horizon and they're actually going to stick with their convictions. They're going to be true to, to who they are and what they know that the Lord has, has called them to do. We love people who will stake everything on conviction. But politicians and preachers and people, we have this weak tendency to want to take the pulse of other people first and see what they say. So whatever decision we make might be in the mainstream of what the current opinion is of, of that day. We, we like that groupthink majority. And it takes place on college campuses. It takes place within the business community of, of a city. It, it takes place within your neighborhood, within your circle of friends. We, we have this propensity of weakness to want to see what other people think before we make a decision ourselves. But such an individual cannot be seen as courageous or maybe even Christ-like. Why is it that we're drawn to characters, whether it be literary or or movie, or historical characters who just model courage? Why are we drawn to people who don't back down? Uh, some of our favorite characters in movies are those that just will not back down. I'm about to date myself here. Big Jake with John Wayne. Okay, four of you have heard of this before. It was before my time as well, but I love the movie. The beginning of Big Jake 
John Wayne sees a group of men who are about to string up, about to hang a, a Scottish shepherd. Uh, he and his son both have, have been captured by this, this group of five or six men who, who want to kill this, this Scottish man. And so, so Wayne goes down and he has this 30-30 with him. He goes down and he throws a knife and it whizzes by the man's face and it sticks into the trunk of the tree. And then he sicks his dog, who is named Dog, after one of the men. And then, then he comes out and gets the rifle and they all give up and he cuts down the man. I love that scene. This is a man who will not back down. I'll date myself again. I don't mind. I'm not afraid. How about Giant with Rock Hudson? At the very end of that movie, Giant, Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor are in a small cafe in Texas. And, and, and the owner of the cafe comes up to an Hispanic family and says, we don't serve your kind here, and asks them to leave or makes them leave. Well, Rock Hudson stands up in the back of the cafe, and he goes to fight this guy who ends up being a sergeant, actually, in the army. And he actually loses the fist fights. But he didn't back down. He was fighting for his convictions. The same is, is true in, in history. Think about Winston Churchill, who was, was so courageous. In fact, probably the lone voice of courage in all of Europe that stood up against Hitler and, and Nazism. While, while Chamberlain was shaking, Churchill the lion was roaring. How about Rosa Parks? Talking about shaking the foundation of a nation. Maybe the, the most important no in U.S. history. I will not sit in the back of that bus because of the color of my skin. Well, more in my time frame was June of 1989 when you see this picture on the screen when this took place. It was the lone student in China in Tiananmen Square. We didn't even know his name. In fact, his nickname became the Tank Man who stood in the column, in front of the column of tanks of the Chinese Communist Army because he thought that there needed to be reforms in that communist nation. An unknown man who stood up for his convictions. I mean, why do these examples inspire us? Why, why do people like this, whether it be literary or a movie or, or historical characters, why is it that we're, we're stirred by them? It's because we embody what... They embody what we admire and they embody what we desire. Just that ability, that okayness to stand alone based on conviction. Have you noticed that we don't esteem people who are always checking the wind? We don't laud people who are always looking to others to, to tell me what do I think, what should I, what should I think. But we deeply respect the women and men who stand up for what is right despite the popular opinion of the day. This is the Old Testament prophet Elijah. God used this person amidst the, the, the conflict, the chaos, the dangerous situations to speak a word of truth to the king and to a nation and speaks a word to us today as well. He was this frontline soldier who put himself in harm's way. He stood in the gap for his nation and stood up against evil King Ahab and evil Queen Jezebel, a man who would not be swayed by popular opinion. Would you go there with me? First Kings chapter 17. We'll begin in verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Let's stop right there. Elijah, do you notice, just steps into history. Two words, now, Elijah. That's kind of all we really know about his, his background. His, his name in Hebrew, um, Eliyahu, 
it's kind of divided up. The El is, is Elohim, the God who creates all things, the God who stands above every other God. The middle portion of his name is a personal possessive pronoun. The end of his name, Jah, is, is Yahweh. And so Elijah's very name means my God is Yahweh. Uh, my God is the ruler of heaven and earth. And so his entire life was based on this. His entire courage was based on this. His actions and his name showed that his trust and his confidence was that he belonged to God. He belonged to God and that his God was the ruler of all. Now it says here in verse one, he's from Gilead. Gilead in Hebrew just means the rough places. And so you kind of get a sense that this guy is from a tough place. He's like maybe a, a settler on the Western frontier, a pioneer on the Western front. So he doesn't back down. His name means my God is Yahweh. But before we go any further at all today, I think it's really important that we understand this together. We don't need to see Elijah as some superhero. In fact, a thousand years after 1 Kings 17 was written, James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote these words about Elijah. You see it on the screen. James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would rain. It did not rain at the land for three and a half years. And so before we kind of get into 1 Kings 17 and believe that Elijah is some Marvel character with supernatural, superhuman powers who lived above humanity, he was not a man just like us. And we really get no runway at all to, to, this, to this guy. He's a Tishbite, and scholars have no idea where Tishbe is. In fact, it's never mentioned again after this one place here in 1 Kings chapter 17. He lives out in the sticks, lives out in Gilead, and we know nothing about his family at all, which leads us to the first sweeping theme. You note takers, you can write this down. The first sweeping theme of the story of Elijah is that God uses insignificant people in unusual circumstances for his eternal purposes. God loves those types of people. They can't get lost in the crowd. People that you and I would never choose, God loves to choose those women, loves to choose those men. Uh, we've Americanized somehow Christian leadership today. And we believe that in order to be used by God, you have to be handsome or pretty or hip or trendy or have nice hair or nice clothes or be in shape or be a social media influencer with tens of thousands of followers or you have to be funny or charming or athletic or popular or stylish and then God will use you, that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is this, God loves to use people that you and I would never even think of. So if you are insignificant, I know I am, live in unusual times, I know we do, then God has you right where he wants you to use you for his eternal purposes. Let me give you a little historical context for those of y'all who like historical context. After Solomon, after King Solomon, King Rehoboam comes and, and, and the, the, the tribes split. The nation of Israel goes up north. The, the nation of Judah goes down south. There are 19 kings over the northern kingdom of Israel. All 19 of them are evil. It's just like this, this evil progressed. So all 19 kings over Israel did, did nothing but evil in the eyes and the sight of God. If, let me show this to you. It's not on the screen. It is in your Bible. Go back one chapter to 1 Kings chapter 16 and look at verse 25 with me. 1 Kings uh, chapter 16, verse 25. Omri, now this is the father of King Ahab, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, did more evil than all who were before him. 
until verse 33. <laughs> because verse 33 says, And Ahab, excuse me, go back to verse 30. In verse 30, And Ahab, the son of Omri, he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Jump down to verse 33. And Ahab made an Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. There's just kind of this one-upmanship in evil. And Ahab was just king number seven out of 19. They continued progressively to become more and more evil. Now, what's going on? Let me give you the context again. In this day, when Elijah is standing up to King Ahab and calling him and the entire country to come back to God, there's three things happening. First of all, child sacrifices. They were killing little ones. Prostitutes that were attached to the religion. There was sex without commitment. A promiscuous society. And thirdly, there was this godlessness every, everywhere. Everything done in the culture, whether it be in family or in business or in transactions, daily life, everything was done without even considering God. Here's the culture. They forgot God. And it's in that culture, that society, that condition that Elijah comes to the king. Let's read it one more time. Verse, verse one of chapter 17 and says this. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Here's the second sweeping theme in the life of Elijah. Following God puts us in opposition to the culture, and that is risky for comfort. I mean, here comes this guy we know nothing of. He stands before a king, a king who is evil, a king that we find out later is also a murderer, and says, here's what's truth. Here, here's my conviction. There's not going to be any rain in this land until I say there's rain in this land. Following God will often put you in opposition to the culture, which is risky to your comfort. Let me just say that if comfort and popularity and being in the majority and, and ease and, and convenience, if those are your top priorities, you may want to reconsider following Jesus. Because in this culture, even more and more so, those who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and those who follow Jesus, it's going to become riskier and riskier to our comfort. There used to be a day here in America that people loved Jesus because he was a majority stakeholder here. But have you noticed that as the name of Jesus and church attendance and following Christ is no longer the major pulse of our nation, more and more people are falling away. Elijah's about to create some trouble right here. And there's going to be some good trouble for King Ahab. Let's pick it up in verse 2. Chapter 17, verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah, and says, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain, remember, in the land. So God takes Elijah from the presence of, of the king to a place of, of seclusion. And most scholars believe that he stayed there quite a long time because it actually uses the word right here in verse five. He lived there. So maybe eight months, maybe 10 months, maybe an entire year. In fact, he stayed there until the brook actually dried up because the rain had stopped. Now, this is the opposite of what Americans would do, especially an American who had the ear of the king. He would never leave that place of power. 
But here God is calling Elijah to move away from a place of, step away from a place of, of power and go to a place of seclusion. Here's the third sweeping theme of the life of Elijah. I think this is pretty important. God's plans do not conform to our logic. If you're expecting God to be logical with you, stop the expectations. He's not a logical God. God's plans do not conform to our logic. So God places him near this brook and that brook is drying up and the birds, did you catch that? The birds are feeding him. This is not logical. Hunters, when was the last time you were outside hunting deer, hunting quail, and some birds brought you some Chick-fil-A. Birds had kind of dropped some waffle fries off for you. Just some little chicken minis. That has never happened in the history of hunting. But this is the illogical nature of our God. He is going to feed. It's not, that, it's not that the birds died and Elijah picked them up and ate them. They were dropping off meals for him. It's here in the separation and the quietness that God begins to do some of his deepest work. God often grows us the most when obedience makes little sense. But God's plans also require us to, to act. You see this in verse five, I love this. So he went and he did according to the word of the Lord. God spoke, Elijah reacted. This, brother and sister in Christ, is the essence of Christianity. God directs us, we obey. God speaks to us through his word, we respond. And so we see Elijah here, he, he, he is acting on what the Lord has told him to do. God directs us, God commands us, God instructs us by his word. We then obey, we then respond, we then react, and our lives begin to crumble because some of you have been there before when we don't obey, when we don't respond. When we don't react and the birds showed up and the water was there and Elijah's just learning the entire time that God is a trustworthy God. Look back at verse, verse six again, verse six and verse seven. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now remember, this is the guy who had spoken for God. Verse one, stood in King Ahab's presence. Verse one, had said it would not rain. Verse one, and then he even said, once Elijah said it would rain, it would start raining. Verse one, then he goes off into this isolation and this quietness and withdraws into the, into the desert and he simply trusts God. But then there's a change of scenery. Verse eight, the word of the Lord came to him. Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Isn't this interesting? The word of the Lord came to Elijah once the brook was dry. Not when it was a trickle, not when there was just a little bit of water left, but look at verse seven, when it was dry. What would it have been like to have been by that brook, knowing that every day there was less and less water going by? If Elijah really was a man just like us, he had to be looking up to God saying, when? When are you gonna take care of me? What's next? Like, what's the next, what's the next step? I'm gonna die here, aren't I, God? And it wasn't until the water was gone, it was dry, that God said, okay, I could preach that passage for the next 30 minutes. I, you're welcome, I will not. But basically, it is saying, God's timing is never our timing. Can I just tell you that as a 53-year-old? I know I just look 52. 53-year-old, that, that, that God's timing has never been my timing. And that frustrates me about him so much. 
that his timing is always the better timing. And, and, and here it is, that, that, that brook is dry. God goes, okay, now let me move you on to another place. So God says, I want you to go to Zarephath. Now you don't know this unless you've cheated with the maps in the back of your Bible. That's a hundred mile walk. That's a hundred miles. Remember, there's drought, there's no water. So here's this guy who has been sustained by the birds, sustained by the brook. God says, now I want you to go make a hundred mile walk with this drought going on. I want you to go to this industrial town of Zarephath where iron is being melted. In other words, it's not a resort town. He didn't go from a bad place in the brook to Hawaii or a bad place by the brook to a beautiful spot. He goes from bad to bad. And God's gonna have an old widow one who cannot even support herself, support Elijah. Let's pick it up again in verse nine. We'll read this passage. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose, and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me also a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days and the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. I love that story. As a kid, I love that story. Can I show you a few things from this passage that you can hold on to this week? Not a few things, actually five things. Let me show you five things from this passage. Here's the first thing. God had his providing eye on Elijah the entire time. The entire time. Whether he be in the court of the king or by a brook that was, that was drying up or, or an industrial town that he had to walk to 100 miles in droughts, Elijah was never outside the visual scope of God. And listen, friend, neither are you. God knew where Elijah was. That's what it says in verse two and in verse eight. I hope your Bible is still open. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. In other words, God knew where to find Elijah. His loving, providing eye was always on him, even in Elijah's loneliness, even in Elijah's confusion. God had not left him. And the same is true of you, daughter of God and son of God. God has not left you. And he knows where to find you. And his loving, providing eye is always on you. That may be the one thing one person needs to hear today. God has not left you. Secondly, Elijah didn't resist the process. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. Uh, he did not resist. Well, at least in this portion of the story, he did not resist. I'll give you a little, here's a little, a little trailer for what is coming. He does resist it later on. But at this point in the story, he does not resist. He could have resisted and lost, but he surrendered and won. How funny is that? He gave up and won. Again, he's going to resist the process later, but right now, let's, let's just celebrate Elijah's yielded 
heart and realize the absolute best way to live the Christian life. You ready? You're going to have to look at me for this one. What's the best way to live the Christian life? Like this. Like, God, I don't know what's next. I don't know how next year you're going to provide for me. I don't know when my kid's going to come back home. I don't know when the, when the anxiety is going to, going to leave. But my life is lived, yielded. I trust you every step along the way. Let me also say this to many of you in this room that are younger than I am. And that number tends to grow, it seems like, every semester. The processes are often really difficult. But the reward is always super sweet. The journey sometimes can be very arduous. To the end of that journey, that you look more like Jesus, isn't that our aim? I mean, isn't that what we hope for, what we long for? I just want to be like Christ. Thirdly, Elijah knew that God he served was bigger than the situation he faced. I mean, he's growing in this. God had protected him. God had provided by the brook, and he trusted God. Birds and old widows aren't the normal way to receive a lunch. Like God was using this old widow who could barely provide for herself, was using birds to, to, to bring, the, 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 that was the method of getting food to him. And look at this conviction, if you don't mind. It's in verse 13 and in verse 14. Let me just read it to you again. Verse 13, and Elijah said to her, to the widow, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and for your son. Look at verse 14. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Here's basically what it's saying, verse 13, don't be afraid. Verse 14, God will provide. If you're not taking any notes and, and really don't plan to memorize anything you heard today, can you memorize those two things? Don't be afraid. God will provide. Fourthly, I love this. Elijah's obedience saved others. Because Elijah responded to God's instructions, the widow and her son did not starve, all because of Elijah's obedience. Would you consider this possibility with me for just a second? Your obedience may be the answer to someone else's prayer. Like this week, you obeying God in, in your generosity, you obeying God by praying for others, you obey God by distributing grace like with the same measure in which you have received grace? This week, if you obey the Lord, have you considered before that your obedience might actually be the answer to someone else's prayer? You see, it wasn't just vertical obedience alone. There's this horizontal application. Elijah was obeying God and others were blessed because of his obedience. And same with our obedience as well. Fifthly, lastly, God's provision is exactly what we need, not always what we want. God's provision is exactly what we need, not always what we want. There was neither a surplus of food in this story, nor a great variety of meals. It was just the same thing over and over again. You know, well, let me just tell you my problem. I won't tell you your problem. You probably know your problems. Let me tell you my problem. My problem is I always want more than what God has given me. 
My second problem, there's a long list. Again, we don't have time today to walk through all my problems. A second problem is I want it yesterday. God, give me more than what you have given me, and would you do it on a better timing than you're providing for me? If that doesn't sound familiar, I think it's the condition of America today. What, what you have given me, God, is not enough. I want more. When you give it to me, is not soon enough. I want it now. But God's provision is exactly what we need, not always what we want. We want a lot of provision. We want it right away. Here's good news. Our limited vision and our limited resources do not limit God. Where is that most clearly seen? The cross of his son, Jesus Christ, where he provided exactly what we needed in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God for our forgiveness. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. God, we want to be all in. We don't want to love you with a half heart. We don't want to love the world Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, and love you on Sunday. Jesus, we, we want to be all in. And we trust all the circumstances that you're leading us through. Even right now, God, we trust your sovereign rule over our lives. We trust your sovereign rule of the universe, the things seen and unseen. God, we trust you when the brook is drying up that you're going to lead us in the right time. God, forgive us that we want more than your provision and we want it sooner than you promise it to us. We are greedy, impatient people. I'll admit it. I'm a greedy, impatient person. God, would you slow me down to trust your sovereign work. God, would you lead all of us, even this week, to quiet places, to deserts, to seclusion, to hear your voice, and to trust all of your good work in our lives. Whether we're in the court of a king or sitting in a dry place, we trust your goodness, your sovereignty, your leadership. Oh God, you are a good shepherd.